We have been, as a church, reading through the gospel of Mark verse by verse, really studying through the gospel uh, verse by verse, and letting God's word speak to us, and really looking to allow it to raise our expectancy and our hunger for who Jesus is and for what he is more than able to do in our lives and willing to do as we know him and know his word and align our lives with him. And as I've been studying, we've been in the gospel of Mark now for close to a year and a half. And after this Sunday, we have two Sundays left in the gospel of Mark and we will come to a close. And next couple of weeks, I'll share with you where we'll be headed uh, next. But as you turn there to Mark chapter 15, I was reminded uh, of a story that I read recently of a small airline, a small flight that was a connection flight between two cities, between two major cities. And on those small connection flights, if you've ever been on them, typically there's one flight attendant, a very small cart with the the snacks, the meal, the drink, and things. And this one flight attendant was working the very small cabin with the different passengers. And as she made her way down the aisle, she was pushing along the small dinner cart, and she was serving the different uh, individuals on the flight. And she came to one businessman, and she asked him, she said, would you like dinner. And he said, well, what are my choices? And she said, well, your choices are simple. It's yes or no. (laughs) It's a very simple choice. And the story we're about to look at this morning, we're looking at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross tomorrow. Beginning the next couple of weeks, we'll look at the the resurrection of Christ and its impact on our lives. Um, But what we're looking at is the most phenomenal event in human history. The most phenomenal event and most defining event in human history. And whether or not we realize it, it really comes down to a simple choice for each and every person. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ comes down to a very simple choice for every single person here. That if you've yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, what you choose to do with the historical event of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ will shape your eternity. For every believer here what you do with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, really will be accounted for. It's a very simple choice of what we do with what the Scriptures tell us about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did we believe it? Did we accept it? Or did we reject it? Did we allow it to shape our lives, to change our lives, and to live differently from that point forward? The Bible tells us when we look and study the Gospels, what we see is oftentimes, I think for Christians, it's very easy to read the Scriptures. It's very easy to read through the Gospel accounts and to look at our lives and to come come to a place where we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And once we place our faith in Jesus Christ and understanding the Gospel, we kind of move on to something different. But that's not the biblical approach in Christianity at all. We're not called to experience a one-time faith in Christ and then move on to something different, but rather the Bible tells us for the believer that it should be a lifetime of growing in knowing the gospel, growing in understanding the grace of God, growing in understanding his sacrifice for us. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 6, it says, speaking of the gospel, it says in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. That for every single believer here, when we hear the story of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not just a one-time event. It's not just something that our hearts are to grow tired of, a story that we, we continually hear. But what it tells us in Colossians 1 for every single believer is that the gospel should continue to bear fruit in our lives. It should continue to change our lives. It, it should continue. It should be a lifetime of learning and understanding the amazing grace 
that God has offered us through Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, in speaking of angels who have spent, who have spent eternity with God, it says they look at the gospel. They look at what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And it says that they, they, they study, they've watched all of history, all of humanity. And it says they're still amazed and marvel at the grace of God that's been demonstrated on behalf of humanity. These are beings that spend time in God's presence, and yet it says they're still amazed and marvel at the gospel. And so for you and I, we should never grow tired of hearing the gospel, never grow tired of of hearing the story of his life, his death and resurrection, and really continually look for how the Holy Spirit can take what what he has done and apply it into our lives. So with that, I'd like to read through Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. And I want to read verses 21 through 41, and then just share with you just a little bit out of it. Oftentimes, what I'll do when it's time for when I take time to study and just to get ready to share something, I'll begin with, before I even go on online, before I begin to pull up commentaries and all sorts of different study tools that I'll use, many times I'll just sit, I'll read the gospel, I'll read the story that's before us, and then with my notepad, I'll, I'll write out a number of things that stand out to me about that story. Then I'll flip to the other three gospels, and I'll find that same story, and each one will share a different perspective, a different detail, and I'll kind of pull those together, and I'll make a list of those details, and yet that, let that begin to be a, a piece that flows in as I'm studying and as I'm uh, just really praying over what it is for us to look at together. But when I looked at this passage, I did, I did a step more than just that. I took time after I looked at those, I took time thinking about the cross of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. I just began to make a list as I looked at the cross of Jesus and what he did. I began to make a list of all the ways of what the cross means to me, what the cross of Jesus means in my life. And as I, reading over the story of Jesus and, and on the cross, I just began to write those details out. I came up with a list of at least 14 different things of what the cross means to me and what his sacrifice does. Now, you don't need to worry. I'm not sharing all 14 with you this morning, but I do want to share with you a few of them. And and my list this morning is not exhaustive, but just to share a few that have stood out to me as I've continued to think about what the cross of Jesus means to me. But look with me in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those listening near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. 
Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had also come up with him to Jerusalem were there. And when I look at this, the, the death of Jesus upon the cross, and as I mentioned, I took time just to write out the different ways that the cross, what it means to me and its impact upon my life. And I'd love just to share a handful with, of them with you. The first one when it comes to the cross, and not just in my life, but for each of us, that the cross means that God loves us personally. The cross means that God loves us personally. When you read through the details of the crucifixion and what we see in, in Scripture, we see in the Gospel of Mark, and you take what the other Gospels have, you'll see and you'll notice that there's a lot of details leading up to the cross, and we really get this picture of just the, the wickedness of the human heart and how they're so bent on shaming Jesus and embarrassing him and humiliating him and, and ultimately eliminating him and executing him. And we get just such a picture of just the, the kind of the summit of, of human sinfulness, just this wickedness with which they're rejecting him. But when you look through the scriptures, you see all of these different details and the things that have taken place, how they've mocked him, they've pulled on his beard, how they've, they've uh, humiliated him, spit on him, put the crowns upon him, all these different things. But yet when you get to the story of Mark and when it comes to the crucifixion event itself, there's not anything mentioned other than this, verse 24, and they crucified him. None of the other Gospels go into much detail about a crucifixion. They don't go into details of what happens to the victim. They don't go into the details of how the soldiers drove the nails or even the type of cross that he would have had. They simply said, and they crucified him. They stated as a, as a matter of fact. In fact, what we really can see when you look through the Gospels, you'll see that the Gospel writers, they, they stated as a matter of fact, and their desire is not so much to arouse pity, but to assure our faith that this thing has happened. And the truth is when you, for the people who would have been listening and reading this account, they really didn't need the authors to pen out what a crucifixion was like. Most of the listeners in, in this day who would have been receiving this letter and, and reading it, most of them still living in the Roman occupation would have had a very clear picture of what a crucifixion was like. Many of them probably would have seen multiple crucifixions on many different days. Some of them may have had loved ones or friends or acquaintances or neighbors who had been crucified. So there really was no question in their, in their mind what took place for a crucified victim. And while I won't go into all of the detail, what would often take place with, a, with, a, a Ro, with the Romans when it came to uh, crucifixion, that many, as they've looked over history, have said that when it came to the way the Romans crucified an individual, they took, they took execu executing someone and they, they tried to turn it into kind of just to a masterpiece. They tried to excel in how they did it, to bring about the slowest death possible and the most pain possible and the most humiliation possible. And what would take place for someone when they were to be crucified? They would be taken charge of by the soldiers. And then the, the centurion in charge typically was a squad of four soldiers. They would take the victim. The victim would carry the cross to the space, to the place where they were to be executed. And then they would be nailed to the cross. 
The cross could be a number of, of different things, and that's why you might see in different stories or read different people talking about different shapes of the cross and what it could be. And it, the, the centurion really could pick which cross it was going to be. It could be a single stake in the ground the person would be nailed to. It could also be in the form of a T that the person, there was no, no upper beam on it, but just a simple form of a T. Others could be in the form of an X. And then what we see is traditionally the, the cross that we see today, the symbol of Christianity. But when an individual had a written charge that was to be posted as to why they were being crucified, the traditional cross, much like we're familiar with today, would be selected because that, that charge, like we see with Jesus, is nailed to the, the primary beam above Jesus' head. And the soldiers would take the victim and they would stretch them out as far as possible from arm to arm, and then they would drive a nail through their wrists and it would, it would sever and it would impact several nerve endings that would then begin to fire pain all the way up and through the arms and up into up your neck and into your skull. They would then stretch the person as far as they could down. They would stack their feet on top of each other and they would drive a nail straight through their feet. Again, impacting the nerves. And in, in the process, in that position, the person was there. Their diaphragm was stretched in such a way that the only way they could breathe would be to push up with their legs, causing extreme pain, or to sag and not be able to breathe. That's why we see when the, when the Passover was approaching that the Romans came and broke the legs of the other men who were there with Jesus so that they would suffocate. Because most victims would stay on the cross for days. Many times in our minds when we look at a cross, we'll see it on TV, we'll see it on a picture. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, we have this image of a cross being suspended several feet over the the people, over 10, sometimes 15 feet, towering above people. That's not a true biblical picture of what took place in that day. When a person was crucified, the cross stood no more than maybe seven feet off the ground. So I'm, I'm just a little over six feet, so imagine just under a foot over me. That's the total height of the cross from the ground. The person was just enough up to be off the ground, but they were eye to eye with most of the people who had, ex- who, had, who had ridiculed them. They were eye to eye with their accusers. The people could come, just like we see with Jesus, they could come and ridicule him, and they could look him straight in the eye and mock him and add to his hum- humiliation. Crucified victims were, they were executed completely naked. That's why Mark says most likely that the women stood at a distance to offer some element of decency to Jesus, not to be there in these final hours when he's completely exposed. And it says Jesus is there. He's really, he's been crucified on the cross, just standing maybe a, a foot or so off of the ground total. And, and then the rest is right at eye, eye level for the, his accusers. And they begin to ridicule him, and they begin to mock him, and they begin to just to make fun of him and harass him and trying to just to really add insult to injury in these final moments. So there's people walking by who probably had never really even knew much about Jesus, were not a part of this, but they would hear what he, these religious leaders were saying about Jesus, and they would, they would heap insults on him as they would walk into the city and just this scene of just, just such a, a point of depravity and human wickedness kind of reaching its summit. But when we look at the cross of Jesus and we realize that he died for our sin, he died for my sin, he died for your sin, and we see this picture of human wickedness of just of, of God comes in the flesh and we show our thanks by nailing him to a cross. We get a picture of that it's just the summit of, of all wickedness. But what we have to realize is that the cross is not just the, a picture of the human heart and the wickedness and the sin with which Jesus died for. But the cross is a picture, it's the ultimate picture of God's love and his passion for you and for me. 
In John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That the center of the story, the center of the gospel is always God's love. It's always his passion. It's always his care for you. And sometimes we can hear those verses, verses like John 3, 16, or verses like Romans 5, 8, verses we're familiar with or you may be familiar with. And we can hear those. And, and I still believe at times our, our hearts can just kind of grow numb to that. You just hear it so much. And you, you hear it and we think about, well, yes, God loves me. He died for me. He, he cares about me. And we think about God's care and his desire. And so the son willingly went along and offered himself so that we could be right with God. But the scripture doesn't just tell us that God loves us personally. It also goes on to tell us that the cross of Jesus Christ and his willingness to die is not merely a picture and an expression of God the Father's love for us, but that it's a personal picture of Jesus Christ's love for us, of his personal love for you. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse number Two. It's picking up midway on a, ver- a sentence that's finishing. It says, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. It says that it was Christ's love. It was his passion that drove him to the cross. Look in verse 25. Speaking of the relationship of the church being the bride of Jesus and the reflection in, in, in the marital relationship. And it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, just it's the love and it's the passion of Jesus. Galatians 2.20 says, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. See, we, we hear the story, we can hear it said again and again that God loves me personally, that Jesus loves you. And sometimes in our minds, we can think about this and we can think about the expression of God's love and his care and his grace towards us. And it's a reminder that it's not just that Jesus came to die for the sin of the world, it's that he came and died for my sin, that it was personal. It was personal. That it wasn't the sin of humanity that separated you from God. It was your sin. It was my sin that cut me off from God. The Bible tells us that sin separates. That sin creates a barrier and creates a distance between me and God. And that it's been my sin. It's been my choices. My hard-heartedness. My selfless living. My focus on self. That it was my sin that separated me from God and Jesus in his love and in his passion and his care for me came and chose the cross. And it's a reminder when you look at the cross of Jesus this morning or you see the cross of Jesus on a, on a piece of jewelry or you see the different symbols of the cross around in different things. Be reminded that the cross is not merely a symbol of Christianity, but it's a symbol, it's an expression of Jesus Christ's personal love for you, an expression of his love for you. Secondly, when I look at the cross of Jesus and I look at what he's done for me, not only 
is it a reminder the cross means that God loves me personally? But the cross also reminds me that God sees sin for what it is. The cross reminds me that God sees sin for what it is. He sees the ugliness of sin. He sees the full cause of sin. He sees the full effect of sin. See, many times when, I, when we read the, the crucifixion story, we read of Jesus dying on the cross, and we realize that it's an event that happened a couple thousand years ago, and we read of the, the way the Romans would torture individuals, and we read of all of the, the way Roman warfare was, the way they would come in and conquer people, or we just, we hear things like that, that sometimes in our minds we can make the mistake of, of thinking of, well, the cross and the crucifixion and what happened to Jesus, that that's just, that's something that is really uh, kind of an archaic archaic, old-fashioned, out-of-date thing in light of human rights and, and the human understanding and the value of life. And sometimes we'll just look at the cross and, and the horrors of the cross of thinking, well, you know, we don't do that today. That we've, we've begun to see a new picture and understanding of, of human life and human rights, so we don't do that type of thing today. And while we might look at it from through the lens of history, the better understanding of the cross of Jesus and what he suffered and how he suffered and how everything that he experienced on the cross is not to look at it through the lens of history, but it's to look at it through the lens of eternity. To look at the cross through the lens of eternity. When you look at the cross through the lens of eternity, Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. But for the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But think about that. The wages of sin is death. Now when we look at the cross, we get a full picture of what this wickedness of sin looks like when it's exposed. When we look at the cross, we get a true picture of what sin truly looks like. See, sin always produces death. That's what Romans 6.23 says. The wages of sin is death. Sin always produces death. Sin always produces death. Choosing ourselves over God always chooses, always produces death because the wages of sin is death. That's why in John 5, there's a time when Jesus heals an individual who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus finds this individual later, and he goes to the guy, and he tells him, he says, listen, don't sin anymore. Something worse may happen to you. He's not threatening the man like God's going to withdraw that healing and you're going to be paralyzed again. He's telling the man, listen, you've been experiencing physical pain, but if you continue to sin, there is an eternal consequence for choosing sin. There's an eternal consequence that's put forward in our lives when we choose to put ourselves first over God. So when we look at the cross, we should see a true picture of what sin produces, a true picture of what sin looks like to God. The fullness of sin, the Bible says, produces death. That sin, when it has run its course in our lives, when it's had its way, produces death. The Bible tells us that there are times, and in Hebrew specifically talks about it, that there are times when sin may seem, choosing our own way may seem pleasurable for the time. It may seem right for the time. It may seem beneficial for the time. But it doesn't change the outcome. The wages of sin is always death. So instead of looking at it from a small picture where we look at sin and we think about it, well, it's just me getting my own way here and then asking God for forgiveness later. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
So the best picture that you and I can have of sin is not a matter of that thing that you wish you could do, but you know God says you can't, or it's that thing that tempts you that you want to, that you give into, or it's not that struggle that you continue to live in. It's not that cycle that you keep coming back to. Sometimes we get those and we create those as the picture or definition of sin. That when we look at sin, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you and I, the best definition, the best picture, the best understanding that we can have of sin would be to see that God preferred to have his son hanging mutilated on a cross than to see sin reign in you. That that's the picture of sin. That's the picture of sin that we need to get. Isaiah says that the, the suffering that Jesus experienced in all of this, that he was beaten beyond recognition... It says that his beard was pulled out in clumps. It says that you wouldn't even be able to recognize him. And it says that's the picture of sin. The wages of sin is death. That it's a spiritual picture. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality that sin always produces death. I'll have individuals who will want to talk about Christianity and talk about God and they'll talk about the tragedies in our world and they'll tell me, well, how could a loving God possibly ever send someone to hell? How could a loving God ever send a good person to hell really is how they say it. And I say, well, you know, that's already a flawed question because none of us are ever good. We can always look back to yesterday, the week before, and we can find something that we've done that immediately misses the standard of holiness that God has for us. But they'll say, "But, but how can a loving God send someone to hell? And I'll tell them, God doesn't send people to hell. God doesn't send people to hell. Hell is the final destination of a life lived for self. When we look at the wages of sin is death, we look at what sin produces, death on the cross for Jesus. Hell is the final destination of not accepting what Christ has done and the wages that he's paid so that we can have life in him. The cross reminds me that God sees sin for what it is. Number three, the cross reminds me that I have full access to God. The cross reminds me that I have full access to God. When you look in the story in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, it says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The picture is Jesus there hanging on the cross feeling the separation for the first time in his entire life, in his entire time of experiencing the separation from the presence of God. And it says darkness sweeps through the land. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. So the Bible oftentimes gives us a picture of darkness, and it, when it gives us a picture of darkness, it's often symbolic of the withdrawal of God's presence. It's often a picture of the absence of God when we, get dark, we see darkness in Scripture. One of the descriptions for hell in, in the New Testament is outer darkness, symbolizing the absence of God's presence. And so we see the darkness that sweeps the land, and it's really a reminder of what Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, and we've already talked about this in a sense. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, but your, your iniquities, your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you that he will not hear. It's a reminder that sin separates. Sin separates us from God. It cuts us off from relationship with God. But then something else happens. Not only is there the darkness, that symbolic picture of the separation that sin brings in our relationship with God, but look in verse 37. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top 
to bottom. When we read of this, of the temple being torn in two, we really have to understand the Jewish temple and how it's set up to get a full understanding of what's transpiring in this moment. And the best way to picture, to picture the Jewish temple, if I can oversimplify it, is we like to picture a large box and the picture smaller boxes put in within each one, creating different regions and different areas. And the farther you go into each one, the less access, the less privilege individuals have in access into those areas. So the innermost part is what is called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. Then, it's, then the next level is the, the holy place. And the next level is what would be a little bit more of a common area. And when it comes to the Holy of Holies, it's the place where the, the ark, which represented the presence of God among the people, that's where the ark was kept. And people would look at the Holy of Holies and there was a very thick veil, stood about 60 feet high, made out of some of the best material. And it stood as a barrier between the people and what represented the God's, God's presence. And you would have the, the Holy of Holies, and then you had the next area that surrounded that was called the Holy Place. And right around, and, and right when Jesus died in that window of time, is a time when the, the high priest, the priest would go in, and they would go into the, there's another curtain that would separate the Holy Place from the rest of the, the temple courts. And they would open up that curtain into the Holy Place so that worshipers could go and they could peer through and they could see the curtain that separated them from the presence of God. And so right as Jesus is dying, right at the same time as the window where the priest would go and he would pull back the curtain and people could peer in and could see the, the, what symbolized the presence of God. And as he's pulling this curtain back, all of a sudden, the priest, as well as every individual who's there worshiping, looks in and they're amazed not only to see a curtain that separates, but to see the curtain that has been ripped from top to bottom. And the place that represents the, the presence of God is open and wide and completely available for access. A place that they've looked at and they've looked at and said, we're not allowed there. It's a place that they didn't have confidence to go. It's a place that even they would have been fearful to go knowing that it could very well cost their lives. And yet they stand there and for the first time they're peering into what was a picture and a symbol of the presence of God. And it's a reminder that through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that you and I, that we have full access to God. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse number 19. I want you to read with me verses 19 through 22. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us to the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with, full, with a sincere heart, and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 19 says we come with confidence. That it's not in fear, it's not, not in trembling, but we come in confidence into the presence of God. That through Jesus Christ, you and I have full access to the presence of God at any moment, at any time, at any place that we desire. And it doesn't say that we come trembling or we come fearful or we come timidly. It says that I come with confidence. That I come with confidence on behalf of what Jesus Christ has done for me and what he has done for you, that we can come with full confidence. Verse 22 says that we can come with full assurance. That we can come without a guilty conscience. Many times I will talk with individuals who will talk with me about their lack of experiencing the presence of God. 
They'll talk about perhaps a sin they've been struggling with. And they said, I've, I've asked for forgiveness. And I just keep asking God for forgiveness. And I just don't feel his presence. I don't feel his forgiveness. I don't feel his grace. And I keep asking for forgiveness. And it's a cycle of, I keep asking and keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. And then somewhere along the way, I get that assurance that, okay, he's heard me. And he's forgiven me. And all things are good. And friends, the truth is, with, when it comes to that approach to God, that's not a biblical approach. That we either have to choose to take God, choose to take God at His word, or we don't. We either trust all of it or none of it. To every believer here in His word, in 1 John 1 9, He says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and forgive us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say if we confess our sins and confess our sins and confess our sins and confess our sins and confess our sins. It says if I confess, I come with a repentant heart. I come with a broken heart, and I realize, God, in your grace, you've forgiven me. You've restored me to relationship with you, but I've made a choice in this. And God, I confess it to you, and I give it to you. The Bible says in that moment that there's grace and there's forgiveness that's been extended. It says that in that moment, we can come to God with full confidence that's not dependent on how you feel. It's not dependent on your past. It's not dependent on what you've done. It's not dependent on your track record. It's dependent on what Jesus has done for you. And we can come with full confidence into the presence of God. And friends, I have many more. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come. I'm going to give you one more as they come. I'll save the rest for another day, another time, and share them with you. But in, in, when I look at the cross of Jesus... I'm reminded that God always has the final word. God always has the final word. When you look at the story of Jesus in verse 33, darkness sweeps the land. We see verse 37, Jesus is dying. To some, to the outward observer, they could look at this and think this truly is the darkest moment in in human history. This is the darkest moment in Christianity. The one they placed their faith in has come to an end. But it's a reminder that even in the darkest moments, God is always doing his greatest work. That even in your darkest moments, God is always doing his greatest work. In Psalm 18, verse 11, the psalmist is talking about his struggles and his challenges and his difficulties and wondering when God will hear him, wondering when his prayers will be answered, wondering when he'll see breakthrough, wondering when he'll see the answer. And then the psalmist says this in Psalm 18, verse 11. He says, but God made darkness his canopy, his covering around him as he came to my rescue. That he said, even in the darkest moment, God was orchestrating my rescue. Even in the darkest moment, God was orchestrating the answer. When I look at the cross of Jesus Christ and his death for me, his death for you, that while some will look at it as being the darkest moment in human history, the, the, the point of defeat, It's a reminder that God always has the final word. That the enemy, while he may try and he may may seek to destroy your life, the Bible says it's very true. While we may live in a sin that suffers from sin and suffers from the brokenness and the consequence of that, you and I can take assurance of heart and have great faith that in all things and in all moments, in every space of your life, God always has the final word. That if there is nothing so permanent 
to God is the death of Jesus upon the cross that he can take what would be viewed as being so permanent and so final and put an exclamation on the point of it as a resurrection. What can he possibly do in your life? That, what is there that he can not do in your life based on what Jesus has done? That it's a reminder of the grace and the goodness and the forgiveness of God that he always has the final word. And it's also a reminder, I'll give you one more, it's also a reminder It's also a reminder that there is no failure or no mistake that's ever so final that God can't forgive. The centurion who was the one who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus at the crucifixion site reached a place of faith and placed his faith in Jesus Christ as a reminder that there is never a mistake or a failure so final in your life that the grace of God cannot Forgive. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as we prepare to close.